This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh. Welcome to The Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Cow, and this is my co-host, Rebecca Davis. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Lawrence. Today, we have the episode of To Boldly Ask with guest John Delancey. This is particularly memorable, probably for you, Rebecca, because it was your first ever project as a producer with us, Mm -hmm. which also happened to be our first live To Boldly Ask episode. Mm -hmm. Now, a few issues came up that nobody saw, you know, behind the scenes. Issues where Rebecca was pinging me all the way until 3 a.m. Can you describe a little bit about what happened? Sure. So because of time constraints, we had to do the live at what was 10 p.m. Eastern time. So that was the 3 a.m. your time. Um, And because it was our first live, there were a whole bunch of extra tech checks that we needed, things that we had to make sure were good to go. But we had a really hard time getting a hold of John right before he was in this rehearsal. Um, We didn't know that at the time. So all we knew was there was a chance that he wasn't going to be able to make it. Um, If it had been a recording like the rest of the Tiboldi Ask series, we would have been fine. We could reschedule. But but this was live and it was late. (laughs) So all of the other companion staff were asleep and it was very nerve wracking. Um, But... In retrospect, in the moment, it's always terrifying. But in retrospect, I know I realize that I've never worked on any kind of film or any kind of production where I didn't have to have at least three or four contingency plans. So with your help and talking to Ian, the host, we came up with quite a few backups just in case. But if anybody out there is listening who may want to get into the industry, wants to do their own films or any other productions just know that this tends to be the the kind of norm you you need to have your contingency plans lawrence is your experience the same it was and not only is it the same it was the exact same maybe (laughs) uh i was given my first ever bbc show where i was the creator executive producer the showrunner and things that i just could not plan for the most insane thing you could possibly ever think of happened and not only that chris judge elevating black voices in sci-fi maybe maybe even more intense of what happened Mm. um and so what's so incredible i think about this industry and the effort that you and ian and the wider team um you know puts in is that nobody really sees that in the final product it is just a great episode. So great job to you and, and the rest of the team. Thanks. You want it to look effortless, right? You want it to, to feel good. So regardless, John was the ever consummate professional, showed up on time as he was supposed to. So we did not have to implement any of our contingency plans. And Ian and John had a wonderful conversation on life, philosophy, and classical music. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of my podcast, To Boldly Ask. Our goal here at The Companion and To Boldly Ask 
is to ask our guests questions they've never been asked before or have rarely ever been asked, and then to dig even deeper. I have plenty of cues ready to roll for our guest today, Mr. John Delancey, and you, our subscribers, are going to have your chance to ask questions as well. John, thanks so much for joining us today. On to Boldly Ask. Great to be here. And I love the fact that I, behind you is a pinball machine. Yes, that is Gorgar, the first talking pinball machine. Nice. Yes, it's a very, it was my uh, turning 50 present to myself that my friends treated me to. Everybody chipped in. So, well, I have a Star Trek story about that right off the bat without you even having to ask me. Uh, Star Trek, they had a Star Trek pinball machine, mm -hmm. and I was given one of them. And uh, my house was such that I went, I just don't know where to put this. So there was, our younger son had a friend whose parents had a very big house. And we said, well, maybe you'd like to have it for a little bit of time while we figure out what we are going to do with it. And they said, sure. I've never seen it since. They got <laughs> bored. They got divorced, and somebody has that pinball machine. Wow. It's, yeah. probably, it's worth a lot of money today, by the way. I know it's worth a lot of money. That's a shame. Right. Somebody, was it Michael Dorn, who still had his in the box? Somebody had it, literally, stored well, away. Well, and one of the voices in it, uh, and I can't even remember the kid's name, uh, the friend of my son's name, but, you know, whatever, you know, Jimmy. Joe. Yeah. yeah, I actually voice in there, you know, Jimmy, it's time for you to go to bed, you know, something like that. You know, it, okay. it's in the, the pinball machine uh, audio. That is so cool. See, there's a story I never heard. We're done. Good talking to you. Have a good night. Great talking to you. Bye, John. <laughs> so let me start with this. Q has been in your life for 35 years now. If any other role in your career could have had such longevity. What role would you choose and why? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, there are roles that I enjoy. I would take it from the point of view of, of talking about roles that I enjoy. Today, I'm working on a role that seems to be a, um, uh, a signature piece for me. And that is, is that I'm getting ready to do another Peer Gint. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the wayward young man, uh, or the, the, the kid who didn't, uh, didn't want to work and just kind of, um, just was, uh, I, I don't even know how to put it. He was, he was kind of a juvenile delinquent, quite frankly, uh, who ends up his life realizing that he has wasted his life. So that's a role that meant, a, means a great deal to me. Um, you know, I, I, I love the role of Amundsen. Uh, I was playing actually when I got the Star Trek job. I also uh, like the role of um, Jack Tanner. I thought that was a great role. So those are roles that I wouldn't mind. I, I'm glad I did them and wouldn't mind doing them again. There you go. Now, there are many hardcore Trek fans out there who love Q, who love you, and who love TNG. As a kid, what characters, performers, and shows or movies did you personally love? I didn't watch very much television because I didn't know how to read. And so my parents, whether it was a punishment or just a, uh, a way to get me to read more, pulled the TV out. I got to see a lot of movies. And the people who I really liked are really kind of old character actors now. Uh, Clifton Webb and, and Adolf Manjou and...
you know, and, and, and those people and the shows that they were on. So I loved science fiction, um, uh, but none of it re until until Star Trek became a movie. I, I really didn't see Star Trek. What was it like, though, for you when you started doing conventions on Star Trek and you ended up meeting a lot of the old character actors at those conventions? Because I'm guessing you met Michael and Sarah, Bill Campbell, a lot of those guys, either on the old Star Trek cruises that you used to do or, or just at the other cons. Lawrence Montaigne. I mean, you had some classic actors at these things. Absolutely. And I respected them for, for, the, for their role in the business. But um, you've heard the story, you know, I, when I auditioned, I ended up uh, auditioning for the role and this big guy comes out behind me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, you make my words sound better than they are. And I said, well, you must be the writer. And he said, I'm Gene Roddenberry. I had no idea who that was. So I just didn't know this. I didn't know these people. Right. Well, what I was getting at was in terms of those actors having been in things other than Star Trek. Oh, oh, as, oh, as, yeah. as character actors. I mean, oh, Bill, well, Bill Campbell had a remarkable career dating back to the to the forties. Absolutely, absolutely. And for that, I I respected them a, a great deal. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. Q was an afterthought, as you have called him in the past, a character added at the last minute to expand Next Generation's pilot from an hour to two hours. Over the years, especially when it came to Picard, John, how much did you get to contribute to his evolution, whether it was you suggesting something or if you heard from the writers that they said, you know what, here's what we see in you, we're going to add this to the character. I'm sure it was maybe a little bit of both, right? Yeah, I think my biggest, the biggest contribution I made was early on, and that is to give it a little bit of a spin, a humorous spin. Um, with Corey Allen in the in the pilot, uh, he really um, did not want that. No, 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 no. It's got to be really straight, straight down the middle. Um, but wherever I could kind of give a wink and a nod, I did. Um, then it got to the point where I ended up saying, you know, please don't write me funny um, because I think that I can. I can um, undercut better than than trying to be, you know, it's it's not a comedy show in the end. Right. So. And was Roddenberry supportive of the comedy end of the equation? I think so. I think so. I mean, he and I had lunch a couple of times, but interestingly enough, we never actually talked about Star Trek. Uh, we talked about planes. I was working with a with a um, with a, a doctor who I had met at a Taekwondo class, who I'm still friendly with, mm. who was a trauma ward doctor who wanted to become a script writer. And he ended up writing Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. Mm -hmm. He and I were working on a, on, a, on a little project, something that I had thought of, which uh, involved a Peaton Pole aircraft, which was a kit that you could buy in the 20s for $500, still not inexpensive. Um, and then you supplied the Model T engine and it was a two seater and it was sort of a, the Pete and Pole aircraft camper. So you could fly to, I guess, 
do camps, you know, campsites, that type of thing. So he, uh, so uh, Gene was really interested about that, and we talked about a lot about that. But then, uh, you know, we talked about, of course, his flying, which was real flying, and um, and war stories of which he had them. I just listened, and um, and so that that was our conversations. Now that the card is done, and you've probably played Q for the very last time, what was he? Was he a god? Was he was he god, a god, or something else? In your opinion, you know, I I, I don't really know how to answer it because I don't have an answer to that. I played Q very close to the vest. Um. If you are given, um, if the character is, if the audience is told that the character is a god, I don't have to play that. I almost don't even have to think about it uh, because that's just a given. So most of what I did has ha, or do has to do with just playing the the um the event of the scene and what needs to be done and 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 i i need to provide this 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 and this and the audience provides all of that hmm. and has that always worked for you as an actor is that the way you've always approached it yes um my agent once sent, said to me she said there are two types of actors people who illuminate the character and people who illuminate the scene. And you are somebody who illuminates the scene. And where does your voice come in? Because it's such an instrument. I mean, do you find yourself protecting your voice? Like no, do? no, I don't. I, I've never had any issues with my voice. When I first went to Juilliard, um, the, um, the person who was the voice teacher at the time took me aside on the first day and told me, your voice is so terrible. There isn't anything I'm going to be able to do with it. Wow. And I, I, you know, I, I don't know what that was supposed to mean or what, what she was trying to drive at. But the fact of the matter is, is that my voice is not cultivated it's I don't do it on purpose. I don't work, you know, I'm down in here and all this type of stuff. I don't do any of that. <laughs> I also have no problems. I've never, even when I was doing big shows like Man and Superman, I've never had a voice problem, ever. Um, it's just where it is. It's helpful in some instances, business-wise, and not helpful in other instances. I just did uh, a, proje a, a project in um, in Tucson where I introduced a new a new um, uh, choral work called Helios. Beautiful, beautiful work. And um, I came out and I I introduced the project, and. Um, and it was um, and and I knew that my voice was important in that respect because I'm on stage with, well, not with an orchestra, but with, uh, you know, it's going to be an auditory thing. I'm not really doing anything different, but I'm aware of it. But for film, I sound like I have a cultivated voice. Um, and um, that's not been particularly helpful. 
Interesting. Who do you feel has interesting voices among other actors? Well, I don't, I don't really know. I, I kind of don't think about it other than if it's a voice that I don't like. Um, If it's a voice that is grading or is not used um, or, you know, we, we listen, I'll tell a a funny story in which I was uh, where I met my wife was at, um, I, uh, I had I was in Seattle and I had gone to a show, um, and uh, and this this woman comes out on stage. The actress comes out on stage, and you know it's it's a it's a story that tells you perhaps how disconnected I am. But I went hmm, moves well, good vocal pattern good articulation, good phrasing. Oh, and she's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm just kind of listening, that's all. And, uh, you know, they're, they're of, of late, there's somebody that we were listening to, uh, both Marnie and I were listening to on NPR, who has, it, it, it's so difficult to listen. Um, so I, I, those, those people pop out to me, but not, not others. There you go. Let's get back to Q. He seemed more than a little obsessed with Picard at times. Do you feel that Picard was his purpose in life? Or were there other people out there, other Picards, for argument's sake, with whom he interacted? I think that there are two... There are two... Um, um, there, there are two zones. Let's take Next Generation, and then let's take Picard. For next generation, because there was no backstory and what have you, my entire attention was on Picard. Um, The difference being that in Picard, the television show, because I'm internally driven at that point, I have a secret, I have an agenda, I now have a timeline, I have all sorts of things. My attention is less was less centered on Picard. So one could say, in the beginning, I allowed myself to be as annoying as possible, um, uh, just for the just for the fun of it. And uh, in this second stage, it was much more like, "Hey, man, let's get moving here." Hmm. Now, everyone talks about the ways in which Picard was changed by Q. But take me to the opposite of that. You're thinking, how did Picard change Q? I I think Picard um, gave Q the opportunity to be empathetic. Um, I had this story that, um, in my own mind, which was never revealed to anybody else, Uh, it was only a story that I revealed to Terry after the show was done. And that is, is that because it was a character that had not, there was no backstory for, I needed to create something, something. Otherwise, you know, it would just be like a poof, I'm I'm there. And then poof, I'm gone. So that's not very satisfying. So I gave myself a story, which was um, 
you know, do you know the story? I'm sure you do. Plato's The Cave. Uh, vaguely aware of it, no expert, but go on. Okay, well, very quickly, there's a cave with an entrance uh, for which the sun, the sunlight goes through. There are humans who are chained inside the cave and can only see, they can only see the wall of the cave. Therefore, everything that goes in front of the cave becomes a projection on the wall. So they are only seeing shadows. And continuing the story, one of them breaks, you know, breaks his chains, goes out to the entrance, goes outside and goes, oh, my God, this is that is reality. That is truth out there. <laughs> comes back, tells the, the humans, um, this, these are just shadows. I, the philosopher now, am giving you the truth. And of course, they kill him. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I had in my head that what are the Q? The Q are in fact seven, you know, you, you know, it's either seven, you know, some, you know, those numbers, the seven who are chained, who watch the wall. Hmm. We are the witnesses, but we are only seeing the shadows. So what have I done? I'm the one who has broken out and I'm, you know, <laughs> traipsing through the universe, trying to actually get the real deal. That was my backstory. What did Terry say when you told him this after the fact? Well, he said, fine. I mean, you know, there's nothing actable in it. You have to write it. So, but for me, you know, I, I, um, I, I it gave me a, a sense of grounding. And I didn't spend a lot of time on it because it's not actable, really. Mm -hmm. It, 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 it gave me some reason to be there and I want to find out and I want, you know, I want to on a bunch of, you know, whatever it is, is uh, ice cream milkshakes or whatever that scene was. And I want a bunch of this and I want to experience that. It gave me a little bit of juice. There you go. All right. Now, you not only played Q, but you wrote a Q novel with Peter David and you recorded Spock versus Q, an audio book. Uh, audio play, actually, with Leonard Nimoy. What did you personally learn about life and humanity from your 35-year association with Q? Because obviously, this guy has meant a lot to you and has been a serious part of your work life, even though it adds up to what, 20 hours of screen time? I haven't really learned that much about myself through this character. I have learned a great deal about myself through the people who watch this. Mm. This is the audience. You know, if you take this notion that you do the play and then you take off your makeup and your costume and you go to the stage door and there are a few people there who, you know, some of them want an autograph and others want to ask you, well, you know, what, what the, what the, to tell you what they thought the play was about and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, the same event that's been going on for 35 years uh, around that. And from that, it has given me a composite understanding of, of my audience. Uh, and I have great respect for them. 
um, a great understanding of of what this means to them. I mean, it. it, it uh, I tried to explain this uh, uh, when I was to, in Tucson a couple of days ago to somebody who doesn't know it at all, and I said I meet people who. Well, well, actually, on stage, somebody came up to me. Uh, I mean, at the end of the thing, and he says, I, "I just love just standing next to you. You represent my childhood. You represent the bond that I was able to make with my father. Uh, you, you know, it's that type of stuff. So, so it's a little bit. I, I kind of feel like." Uh, you know, that, that song that you hear that you haven't heard for a long time right. and you hear it and then you go, oh, my God, it brings back all these things. Well, I'm the guy now who brings back <laughs> the gray haired ghost. Yes, that's, that's, you. that's right. Yes. And <laughs> you you got it. There you go. Well, I, I don't got it, but I, you do. <laughs> yeah. all right, so the last time you and I spoke, John, you were on your boat lining up this conversation for to boldly ask. We had to make sure you weren't going to be out on your boat. So where did your love of being out on the water come from? How long have you had it? And what do you get out of being out on the water? I first started sailing when I was 10 years old. I went to a camp uh, in, in New Hampshire and they had a sailboat and I sailed. But probably what really got me is that my father was with the Philadelphia Orchestra and he, he had um, uh, uh, essentially theatrical hours. Um, I forget how many shows a week they did, five or six shows a week. That means he's gone. You know, it's it's like any dad who works on Broadway or 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 is in a play, you know, in a regional theater. There, Monday is your only day off. Right. So I did not get to see him very often, and he he his brother he was a younger the younger brother and his older brother had a sailboat in san francisco and they would go sailing so he started saying well let's let's get a let's get a sailboat so he, we got a sailboat and i sailed with him it, it wasn't long before he stopped sailing and i just continued sailing and so that's that's really where where it all started. And is it a solitary thing for you or Marnie and the kids and grandkids out on the boat with you now? Well, Marnie and the kids, no, not really. I mean, they, they are coastal sailors of, and they are fair weather sailors. The thing about sailing that I like the most is that you have to be out of your head. <laughs> not always a great place to be. Okay, it's right. better to be out of your head than in your head sometimes. Right. And you are running scenarios constantly. Just if that happened, what, what would I do if that happened? What would I, you do not want to be one of these people that's caught like, oh, wow, gosh, what, what was that noise? What happened? Where are we? Where's the wind coming from? You know, you, 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 you just have to be very present and um, and um and attuned. And I enjoy that. I find that I, I like that. I like it. Fair enough. All right. For many years, including what you were mentioning before about Helios, you've been involved in either introducing or narrating or providing prologues for musical and orchestral performances. How did that come about? And what's the joy that you take in that? I mean, you've done a lot of it. Yeah, I have done a lot of it now. Um, uh, 
as a kid, I would go down to uh, my father was with Philadelphia Orchestra. So that meant that I saw hundreds of concerts um, and I saw them in a different way than probably most kids did. Um, you know, it was a little bit of a playground. Uh, the the uh, the crew in the back knew me backstage the backstage crew knew me you know all the men back there you know, <laughs> you know, they, hey you want to go down and see the well you know and here oh yeah here you know have some donuts we had them this, we got them this morning you know i mean it was that type of stuff and then um so i listened and listened and listened but not really as a musician but as a kind of a as time went on as a more um uh as uh, not a professional audience, but just like a, a like a, an audience. I mean, a, an audience that goes all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember as a little boy listening to uh, um, uh, Berlioz's Herald in Italy, the, the, the viola section there, and, and just crying, just crying and crying because it was so beautiful. I'm not a musician. Uh, but I've listened to a lot of music. And so when I was asked to do uh, uh, Pierre Gint, um, I think that was the first one, or maybe I had done a bunch of stuff at, at Aspen. I don't know. I don't remember anymore. Um, you know, one of the things that's sort of nice in the music world, at least for people like me, is that if you do a good job for one thing, you could you, they'll hire you for the next uh, you know, if you did a good job for for um, Berlioz, you'll you know maybe you'll do a good job in Beethoven, uh, as opposed to as to in our profession, is if you do Richard II terrifically, you have to audition for Richard III because right. it might not be your role. So so people would continue to ask me, and and um, and I don't know, maybe it's just that I, it's what I grew up with, and I really know the orchestra. I know how it works. Hmm. I had a series. I, I then took over the um, the children's concerts for the LA Phil for I think four years, and then uh, and then I had a series called um, First Nights, which was me uh, pitching a series called We Need to Have We Need to Have Children's Concerts for Adults. Hmm. Uh, because now music is not being taught in, you know, nobody understands what the context is. They come into a, they come into a, con into a concert hall and they think that they're supposed to just shut up and sit still and listen to this sacred music and not understanding that uh, Mozart, the Hofner serenade was for a wedding. Nobody was, everybody was talking and drinking. <laughs> And drinking and laughing. And it's only when he got up and played the violin for, you know, a few licks that they went, oh, okay. And then they went back to this. So, so I, I love all that stuff. Great. Acting wise, what else are you working on at the moment or what do you have coming up? Well, uh, the only acting that I am doing next is um, the Pier Gind. That's what I know. Um, um I'm not really looking for stuff. I don't want to spend. I have, and it was Leonard. You know, I well, you do know, obviously, but maybe the audience doesn't. Uh, Leonard Nimoy and I had a company uh, called Alien Voices, and we ended up um, 
working with each other for uh, very closely for about four years. Uh, and then we just got tired of having to sell stuff. We enjoyed making it. We just didn't enjoy selling it. Right. Um, but he used to say tasty morsels. And, um, and I met Leonard at an age, which is younger, or excuse me, uh, I'm older than when I when, when his age was when I met him and he was, he was probably in his 65 or so. And he was saying tasty morsels. And I think it's, you know, so I go to project from project to project to project. What, what interests me and what comes up? There you go. All right. Let me open it up to some fan questions that I've got here. Uh, how would you envision the afterlife for Q? That is from gnomes. Well, um, we actually talked about that in Picard. Um, I envisioned it this way. How does an omniscient creature deal with the unknown? Can't be omniscient in the same space as an unknown. Mm -hmm. And so... I felt that Q as an omniscient and omnipotent creature would move towards the unknown. Like so that. it's know it. I like that. All right. Yeah. Uh, Alexa is asking, what's been one of your favorite works? I just purchased Legend. And of course, we loved you as Q. But what's been one of your favorite works? Let me let me put it that a different way. Actually, what's a work of yours that you wish were as popular as your Star Trek work? What, what's underrated? What do you love that you wish people saw? Well, I think that Legend was um, uh, not just not enough people saw it. Right, that was an um, early UPN show. It was an early UPN show. It was written by Michael Pillar for you. Um, it was beautifully written, and um, a lot of good stuff went in. And, you know, it had like a little bit of that kind of Preston Sturgis kind of feel about it. And I wish that it, it had been seen more. It was a great show. Were you surprised it didn't last, or did you think it was too offbeat? No, I'm not surprised. I'll tell you, we worked so hard. Our days were never less than 12 more like 14. And there were times I remember once where I was told, um, I went, Oh my God, I'm finished at seven tonight. That's fantastic. And he goes, well, I'm sorry, John, but we're picking you up on the, on the other crew that's going to then take you until seven in the morning. I went, Oh, yeah, yeah. so, so when it came in, when it came down that we had been canceled, uh, I, I, at least for myself, we were gray. With, with just like, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. It was only afterwards that um, began thinking, oh, what a shame. What a shame. And uh, the irony is, is that the, the woman who came in to take over the studio and then, as is their want, often they throw things out. Uh, she got thrown out about a year or two later. Right. And then um, my agent called me up to say, huh, well, here's an irony. Uh, UPN is looking for shows just like Legend. <laughs> <laughs> that is the ultimate F-U irony, yes. Okay. All right. So, uh, let's see. 
Riddler's gal is asking, I know you have three grandchildren now. Owen has a little boy. Keegan has a four-year-old. Uh, but was the new baby, not so new anymore, a boy or a girl? Girl. How old now? She just turned one. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you enjoy being a grandpa? And how does that word how does that word resonate for you, grandpa? Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. I mean, we had in in we had a very unusual experience, uh, you know, a silver lining during the COVID period, and that is is that our older son, um, with our grandson and with his wife and grandson and our grandson uh, came to the house. They they were in D.C. and they needed to have. Um, language training. Um, they're, they're, they're in the uh, State Department. And they were very concerned about having language training in D.C. because they would have had to have given their their son over to, a, you know, some school or something like that. And it was just right at, at the height of COVID. And so, so they asked if they could come. And so we lived as a uh, as a multi-generational family for 10 months and that was great. I mean it had its it had its problems. Of course. Yeah, but but overall it was great. It was great fun. So I really got to we really got to uh to know our our oldest grandson. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like when we started with COVID, my son and daughter came home. And we had the there. four of us with their childhood dog for, I think it was six weeks total. And uh -huh. we'll, ne we'll never have that again. So exactly. Right. It's exactly. One little silver lining from, from COVID anyway for us. Exactly. Uh, let's see. Miss Mobius is asking, would you ever do another TV series with Richard Dean Anderson? And if yes, do there happen to be any actual plans for such a thing? Have you ever discussed it? No, we've never discussed it. I mean, you know, one of the things is, is that uh, this is very different than the um, uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Let's put on a play, you know, that type right. of, you know, things, things cost money. <laughs> yeah. It, it, the last thing that you put together when you are putting together a television show is the cast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might have one or two ringers in there, but I mean, it's, it's, the, it, we're so far down the line, you know, there's so many things that, so no, the, the answer is no, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. How often do you get handed interesting gifts from fans? And, oh. and what have you gotten? Um, well, it usually happens at a convention, and the one in which I'm thinking, there was a lady just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she gave me a um, origami, which was the tiniest origami I have ever seen, and it was a parrot that 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 perched on my finger. I just thought it showed such you know, kind of skill and artistry and, and stuff like that. So that was fun. Don't give me anything to read because I won't. <laughs> and let's see one more here. I loved your final scenes with Patrick Stewart in Picard. Thank you. How much of your scenes uh, were ad-libbed with your own cuteness? Well, the big difference between next generation, where you could not touch anything and everything uh, could, could not touch the lines and everything was a spin, mm -hmm. a spin, just because it says I love you, I could deliver it in such a way that you go, oh, my God, that's the, you know, 
that there's a lot going on underneath that that is not on on the line. In Picard, uh, they were very willing to listen to me, to to others. Um, um, so there were some lines here and there. And the only thing is, is that once you get into actual f- filming, you're not, it's really still not an environment. We're not filming a comedy or anything like that. You, um, uh, the lines might've been tweaked up until filming, but then when filming happens, you deliver the lines and then, and then everything becomes how you deliver the lines. Right. And then how pleased were you with the farewell hug? Well, uh, there are, there are, there are two farewells in that episode. The first farewell, um, takes place there. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's another one that takes place outside, which I, I frankly thought was kind of like I had already said goodbye. (laughs) That was a goodbye scene for a lot of other people, but you know, that I didn't have frankly any involvement with. So that scene that you showed, I thought was, was um, uh, worked out well. And, when we were finished, um, just so that you understand, that that's shot in a you know it, it, in a in a in a set that's like this, and and then outside of that set, I don't know, you know, outside of that set, we're in the set, and outside of that set is where the cameras are focused, and that's all, and out here is all black, hmm. so we're acting in there. And when we started that scene, there were, you know, the the necessary people who were there. In other words, the crew. Mm-hmm. But we were finished. Um, you know, they, you know, got there was this big uh, um, applause, and I I looked out and I was like, oh, where's that gone? And the set had fi- or the the stage had filled up with a lot of people who had come to see that final scene. Huh. So it was nice. Was that Q saying goodbye to Picard or was that John Delancey saying goodbye to Patrick Stewart? You know, it's all the same. The way I play it, it's all personal. <laughs> all right. Super R illustrations. What kind of books do you enjoy reading? And are you currently reading anything right now? I enjoy um, history books. Uh, everything that was had been written about crossing oceans, just about everything I, I have read. All the um, explorations, uh, the, the Portuguese, all the Western es- explorations that took place, you know, in the 14th 15th century, I, I read all of those. I'm of late having more and more difficulty literally reading. So uh, I bought myself a Kindle and I have to start moving things over to that. Thank you. Um, yeah. You mentioned very early on in the interview that you were not a great reader as a kid. Is, is all of this making up for lost time? You know, experiences? It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it, I've never not read. 
I've never not read. I'm not the person who you would give um, a big stack of, you know, contracts to and stuff like that. I'm, I'm just not, I'm just not, I'm too slow. I'm very slow. Hmm. I'm a slow reader. Um, I wrote a, um, I had to, to present a, an award, a big award, a $100,000 award for poetry. And, you know, they, they asked me because, because I'm a minor celebrity, but they didn't realize that they were asking somebody for which this meant a great deal to. Mm. So I wrote a, 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 a speech about how I learned how to read being so dyslexic that when I would open uh, uh, the page, you know, the, the the page of a book and you would just see a chunk like this and another chunk on the other page of just words. I was just like, my God. But one day I opened up a book called the golden treasury of poetry and they were little poems, you know, a little poem here, a little poem. And my eyes could kind of focus on that. And that's what, got me to start reading because I started saying to myself, first of all, I started saying to myself, I need to learn how to read. I mean, I've, I'm 11 and 12 years old at this point. I've already flunked out of two schools. Mm. I need to learn how to read. And then I would start reading things out uh, uh, aloud. I think, by the way, you go back to the voice thing. I, I went to a, a little tiny school, the Booth School, uh, essentially for a lot of wayward kids and 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 um there were only 19 of us in our ent entire class and what have you. and we had a great teacher mr biddle who would say we're going to do mozart's marriage of figaro and now we're going to do henry the fifth and delancey you're going to play henry the fifth and you know i'm 13 and 14 years old at this point but he also because i didn't know how to spell he goes, you're going to learn how to spell. And he would take me out to the soccer field or football field, whatever you want to call it. And I would be under one goalpost and he would be under the other. And he would scream out words to me and I would scream back. And I think in a way that developed, helped to develop projection. Wow. And yeah. I got to ask, we're talking 60 years later. You remember Mr. Biddle. Did you ever uh, get a chance? Did you ever get a chance to thank him? Mr. Biddle. Mr. Biddle's paintings are in my house. So the answer is yes. Yes. Very cool. All right, I got one more question from a fan, and then we're going to do the speed round, my friend. How young was John when he knew he wanted to be an actor? Uh, I was probably 14. It was the first time I had just done Henry V. Um, people seemed to be all a Twitter about it. And um, it was the first time in my life that I had ever been gotten a compliment for anything that I had ever done at school. So I just grabbed onto that like it was a life preserver. And I'm not even sure whether I wanted to be an actor as much as I just wanted not to sink. Right. And you haven't sunk. All right, I've got a question here that somebody just added last minute. Uh, are you interested at all in directing or writing an ocean-going movie yourself? Mixing your loves. Yeah, uh, ocean-going movies are very difficult to shoot. Uh, uh, extremely difficult to shoot. 
And um, I, I, I had uh, on, on the way back from uh, Rayatea with a young man, Ray, uh, we had some, some issues. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in sailor, you know, long distance sailor talk and what have you, you want to have challenges that then don't kill you. Right. <laughs> you know, so that you can talk about it and go, gee, I, I got through that. I, but I'll tell you, it was a little bit like this. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, it's not going to happen. It, it's just there, there are too many elements. The making of a movie is so complicated. It's so complicated. That's why that's why it's easy for me to stay in the um in in the orchestral world, you know, and then plays and stuff like that, because I can create them very quickly and and do them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Not spend five years trying to do them. All right, let's get to the speed round. These will just be fun. You don't need to go into detail. Just right off the top of your head. What's your favorite color? Blue. Drink of choice. Rye. Rye. How long is a piece of string? As long as it needs to be. Is Q dead or now part of something bigger? Always bigger. (laughs) You can witness any real moment in history. Which do you choose? I want to be I want to be in the fly in the wall when Alexander the Great as a young man decides I'm taking over the world. I yeah. Or or shows up in Siwa. Fair enough. Best book you've ever read. The Discoverers. Borstein. Best movie you've ever well, seen. And I'm going to add the one that made the most impression on me, Jules Verne's Mysterious Island. What movie of yours do you wish you had not been cut out of as much? Oh, Fearless. What a great movie. Your bits were great. And I'm sure I remember at the time talking to you, your scene got cut, right? All the good stuff with Jeff. It's, you know... I ended up having to lay down on the bed when, when, um, when um, Peter um, Peter Weir called me. He said, uh, "I got to get to you before anybody else does." And I go, "Oh my God, I've been fired!" And I got, "No, wait a minute, I've shot the movie. How's that possible?" And he said, "We've decided to start with the, the plane crash." And I went, "But Peter, that's my whole part. All of that stuff before is my whole part." He said, "Hey, happens." Have you ever seen the footage? Is it on the Blu-ray or did it not even make the extras? I, I don't know. You know, I rarely look at anything anyway, so it doesn't matter. Here's a question. Are you an actor who looks at himself? Do you watch yourself or you don't like it? I don't like it. I, I watch myself with great uh, trepidation and then it, it mostly to go, oh, okay, okay. It wasn't as bad as I thought. So it's just hard, you know, um, uh, you know, and I know some people who just watch themselves. Mm-hmm. And I go, What's still on your bucket list? Well, I don't know, really. Um, I don't know if another sale would be make sense. I've already done that. 
a big long one. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Um, I can't really answer that. Fair I not. think maybe just to spend a little bit more time with, with uh, the kids and the grandkids and what have you. But I'm not retired, goddammit. There you go. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure? Potato chips. Really? Oh, my God. And popcorn. And anything salty. There you go. And, and crunchy. Pretzels. Pretzels covers that as well. Uh, uh, yeah. There you go. All right. Let's do some show and tell. I haven't seen what you got, so this will be fresh for me. Show me okay. something. Okay. I just thought that this was funny. Oh, I got to go and get them. These are all Star Trek things. Awesome. Um, the idea that someone, you know, some people like to put, you know, the Virgin Mary on their Christmas trees. Right. (laughs) (laughs) How freaky is that? How freaky is that? Yes. And you know what? I think that the the face is not too bad, actually. How freaky is it to hold yourself in your hand and know people have this? Uh, on it? Yeah, listen, I was once, uh, we were r- rushing out the door and going up the stairs to where the car was with the boys when they were young. And all of a sudden, one of them, you know, and we were late, and one of them uh, breaks away and starts running back downstairs. And I go, where are you going? And he goes, I got to get dad. And I looked up to my wife and I went, what? She said, your action figure. <laughs> Life of an actor on a Star Trek show. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So there's that. But there's I'll- this with his Sonia, Sonia Helios, who I just thought, I don't know if I can get more light on this. Let me see. Um, I, this was the first thing I was given when I, I mean, within within a matter of, I, I can just show you over here. I don't know if you can see it. Do you see that? Yep. Cut in a little higher. There you go. Very cool. Uh, I thought that that was amazing. And I've had it hanging in my office ever since. And then the other thing. Talk about, I talk about full circle with Helios. Sonia Helios yeah. and the show you just did. And then this, this last thing, which I had. Uh, and I showed Leonard. And it was hilarious because he just didn't get it. He did not find it funny. <laughs> Dying to see it. You're building this up. What is it? <laughs> okay. I said, don't, and I, and actually I showed this to Bill a couple of weeks ago. No reaction from Bill either. No, no. He said, you want me to sign it? I said, <laughs> I said, no. Did he charge you a hundred bucks? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was funny. His letter was like, well, you weren't in that. I said, no, it's a, it's a mashup. Oh, okay. Very I funny. always, I always find that, and I have that downstairs in my office. What is the craziest thing you've seen your face plastered on? 
Oh, I don't know. Nothing comes to mind, really. Leonard Woes talked about that Heineken ad with the oh, different yeah. right. Yeah, but he also did pretty well by uh, with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, uh-huh. yes. All right. so is there yeah. anything that you've never answered about your Star Trek experience that if you were going to interview yourself, you would ask you? Um, no. I mean, you have to understand, and I think I've told you this privately, this is like having cooked a meal 35 years ago that everybody knows about the meal, but they're not asking about the meal anymore. They're asking about when you went to the grocery store to pick up the, the ingredients, the actual ingredients. Yes. But they're not even asking about that because when you go, well, I, you know, I got some potatoes. No, no. Like children with, when you're telling them a story and they know that you've deviated from the story. No, remember you looked, you took that, that, that potato and you looked at it and you just went, no, that's not a good enough one. And then you picked up the other one. It's so detailed now that I just, I just don't have, nothing particularly comes to mind. It's funny. The fans know the stories better than some of the people who lived it at this point. Absolutely. Which was my discussion and, and, and the writers agreed with this. I said, you know, the fans know the show better than we do. They just know the show better than we do. Right. That's why I, I'm very, very, um, uh, uh, I, I I I I feel that they respectful of 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 what the fans are, you know, especially the ones who really do know the show. I mean, and they, well, you've got a Mike McMahon who's running one of the shows now. How much fun was the Lower Decks experience? Yeah, right. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, you know, that type of experience is 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 short lived to the extent that you're really there for an hour, maybe. And right. in my case, it was very short. Very cool. Well, yeah. before I let you go, John, is there a charity that you want to shout out and draw people's attention to? Is there a group you support? Uh, you know what? Uh, yes, but I I kind of don't. I, I just do that privately. Okay. I was going to yeah. say Planetary Society because I know you were involved with some of that at various. Absolutely, points. and 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 I think what they're doing is great. Um, but the other stuff is is a little more, um, yeah, private. No worries. Private. Well, good deal. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. I hope I did ask you a few questions you either haven't been asked before or have rarely you, you been have, asked. You know what, Ian? It's always great to talk to you. Pleasure always talking to you. Thank you so yeah. much, John. Thank you. Bye-bye. Peace and love. Cheers. Hi there. This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events.
you won't want to miss this because it's not just a Stargate Masterclass. It's a Stargate Chief Master Sergeant class. See you there. But for now, Chevron 7 is locked. <laughs>